The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Once a month I take a couple minutes to reflect on what we call dana, which is an important operating principle at the center. But more important than that, it's, I think, an important operating principle in our lives. A couple weeks ago, we had a workshop. I led a workshop on relating wisely to money, livelihood, and uh, worldly success. And the real art of being alive, being a human being, whether we think about this in the modern times where we all live or other times, the real art is somehow understanding how best to participate in this world of giving and receiving. In a way, it just points to life. It's not specific to human life, any animal. Any living being really is participating in giving and receiving. You can't be a living being without giving, and you can't be a living being without receiving. And the question is how to find freedom in that. Because it can certainly, we see it in our own lives, we see it around us, it can certainly turn into a real burden, this having to feed the body, having to clothe the body, having to find shelter, find you know, appropriate relationships. We can get really neurotic about this, really tight, really caught in a a feeling of scarcity, like there's not enough to go around or what we have isn't enough. And then it really gets in the way of giving. You know, when we feel tight, we don't want to give, we want to hoard. Even hoard things like our love and our affection. I see that all the time. When I'm feeling insecure, or tight about things, I don't want to be generous to my wife. I don't want to be loving and giving. I want to be needy or closed. So the real key about happiness is understanding that we really have two options. One is suffering, which is in one way or another not fully participating in a world of giving and receiving. And the other possibility is plunging in, you know, really understanding we do live in a world of giving and receiving. There's really no other way. So we, we kind of intentionally, wholeheartedly enter that world. And so here at Common Ground, we, you know, we play in that world. We intentionally, as an organization, play in that world. Instead of imagining that we have to take control of the giving and receiving, we we have plunged, you know, when we started the organization, we plunged in this world of freely giving and receiving. So uh, the leaders here, the teachers here, we all practice giving freely. People show up, when we have classes. The uh, practice for us is to try to share what we have to share freely with no strings attached. All the programs are offered in that way as free gifts. Of course, the only way we can do that is because We've been supported by other people's free gifts. You know, that's what allows me to do this because I don't have to worry about having another job like I did in the early years of Common Ground. 
So I can just give myself completely to running the organization and teaching. And so that's my job, is to give freely and to receive freely. Receive the gifts and the support that come my way. And everybody else's job, it's the same. You know, when you come here, you practice receiving freely. For whatever it's worth, the gift of the teachings, the gift of the community, the gift of the building, just receive it as a free gift, freely offered, no strings attached. Let it be a cause for joy. How nice it is. It's a free gift. And then any way you feel inspired to give back. You obviously, you probably saw the big bowl in the lobby. And all those gifts go towards you know, paying for the office staff, supporting the office staff, paying the mortgage, paying utilities, supporting the teachers. Or you give your time. Or you give your sincere practice or your sincere good wishes. But one way or another, we all have to give back. Some of you might specifically give back to the center. Other ways, there are other ways to give back in your life. So it's not always like if I got from here, I have to give to there. It doesn't work that way. It's really about plunging into this world of giving and receiving. So it's like in any moment of our life, we're practicing freely receiving what's coming our way in that moment. Or in that moment, we're practicing freely letting go what's being asked of us in that moment. Oh, this moment is asking me to show up with this person that I'd rather not show up with. And this person's in need, so you know I'm being asked to show up and be supportive. I don't want to be supportive, but you know the world, the universe is asking that for me right now. So I can create all kinds of rigidity and reject that invitation, or I can open to it and do the best I can and then move on to what's next, that the next moment of receiving or the next moment of giving. <clears throat> so that's the idea that we want to run the center in practical ways in a way that's in alignment with the deepest teachings, right? Because the practice, this whole path of awakening, the path of mindfulness, is about a freedom that comes when we're fully in the experience of freely giving and receiving. That's what awakening leads to. Like a life of no friction, meaning there is no friction to the giving and the receiving that's going on in our lives. We're not operating apart from this cycling of giving and receiving. So we thought, well, let's make the organization run on that principle. So like I mentioned, we don't have suggested donations. We don't have fees for any of the programs. And all we do is usually once a month like this, make a three, four minute talk about just an invitation to reflect and how can you receive freely so it actually feels good, whatever you're getting from this place, and how can you give freely. And I always say, if we give too much, if give, like, for example, too much money, it's not going to feel good. It will feel off, like we're neg neglecting other aspects of our life or other places that could use our support. And if we don't, if we're afraid to give or tight about giving, that also won't feel good. So how can we give back at Common Ground and everywhere else in our life in a way that actually is a cause for joy and healing? How can we receive in a way that's a cause for joy and healing in the world, in our hearts? You see, it's like an endless practice. It's really not different than this whole path of awakening, just another way of thinking about it.
So if you have any questions, you know, practical questions about that, feel free to see me or any of the leaders at the center. Many ways to contribute. You know, some people put themselves on, you know, a monthly contribution through their bank, or you can go online to the website and sign up for a credit card deduction one time, or you know, every month, every quarter, every year. So there's innumerable ways. You can give every time you come, or you can give every once in a while. You can give when you're inspired. So it's just your own way. There's no suggested way. So I'll leave it there. Let me know if you have any questions about that. And we're now talking about Chapter 17 in Jack Kornfield's book. And we've been working with his book, The Wise Heart, now for quite a while. And Chapter 17 is about intention. Another way of thinking about this whole path of awakening, you know, developing these qualities of alertness and relaxation is all in the support, in support of seeing clearly intention. In a way, intention is the um, is the fruit of this, you know, developing mindfulness in order to see clearly intention in the mind. And we could say that the root of all unskillfulness is not understanding the movement of intention in the mind. You know, the truth is most of us are running around distracted. We're distracted by life, the busyness, the worries, being pushed around by life, struggling, you know, to earn a living, to have relationships. We're so consumed by that that the mind is pretty superficial, distracted, scattered, dissipated. And it takes a refined attention. It takes this balance, what we call samadhi, where the mind's calm and alert, relaxed and alert, in order to begin to see the movement of intention in the mind. And the Buddha would say something like, without understanding intention, without seeing it in the mind, in the moment, in the mind, it's not really possible to be skillful. We might stumble upon being skillful, saying the right thing in the right way. But it's not, in a sense, it's not really skillful because to be truly skillful, we have to understand that it is skillful and why it's skillful. Like understand meaning we're seeing directly how what we're saying or not saying or what we're doing or not doing, how it's really leading to happiness for ourselves and others. That's really what skillfulness means. And it's not really possible without at least a basic beginning understanding of intention. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll talk about intention. And hopefully, people will have some things to share from your own practice about intention, how you experienced it, how you've seen it, how seeing intention has changed how you are in the world, how you're able to be more skillful or avoid being unskillful. It's a famous passage from the Buddha where he's talking about intention. And of course, intention has all to do with karma. The simplest translation of the word karma, in Pali it's kama, in Sanskrit the word's karma. And the simplest definition of karma is just action. But really, in the way that's important to us, it means intentional action. So action that's coming out of intention. I'm intending to say something and then I say it. I'm intending to do something and I do it. I'm intending not to do something and then I don't do it. These are all intentional actions. 
karma or kama. And because they're intentional actions, there's fruit to that. There's a consequence. And in a way, we can say, without, without getting confused by this or making this more than what it is, we can say this experience we're having right now is the fruit of kama, the fruit of karma. It's the fruit of everything that's come before. And in particular, it's the fruit of intention that's come before. If we're now experiencing a particular emotional pattern of being really happy or being really fearful or defensive, that experience of being defensive is the fruit of whatever's come before. It's not accidental. It's not random. What we experience is lawful. Now, people misunderstand karma and think, oh, I'm to blame for how it is now. It's a complete misunderstanding of what the, how the Buddha taught. I mean, at the very heart of what the Buddha taught is that there isn't anybody, there is no center to this unfolding. So although there is cause and effect, there is this lawful unfolding, it's a very vast and interdependent unfolding. And this is a great mystery. It's, uh, it seems confusing until we actually start paying attention to our life, and then it makes perfect sense. Relatively speaking, there is this lawful unfolding, and in a conventional sense, this lawful unfolding is happening to me. You know, I'm experiencing the fruit, the results of this lawful unfolding of my life. That's how we speak conventionally. We all understand what that means. And then from a absolute or from a, a more vast perspective, we understand that although things are unfolding lawfully, that lawful unfolding isn't happening to anybody. Anybody in the way we conventionally understand. It's like, although it's being known, the fruit of action is being known, we don't have to grasp that fruit. You do something now in the room, I get defensive. In that moment of defensiveness arising, like basic emotional fear, I get fearful. You don't like me, maybe. So that fear comes up. But if there's wisdom in my mind in that moment, if I'm mindful and wise in that moment, then I notice the mind is aware that fear is arising. And in that space of mindfulness, in that space of knowing that fear is arising, there's space enough to understand that the mind can either get identified with the fear, take it personally, and then react. They really are thinking about me, you know. Or there can be, from the sense of space, there can be a simple recognition of that's just the feeling of fear. Fear is being known. The mind doesn't have to proliferate in any way around the experience of fear arising. Well, that's a big difference. Where uh, an afflictive motion can get triggered because of the way the mind is conditioned, you know, previous conditioning. But it doesn't have to go anywhere. There's a lot of freedom in that. And that's the difference. That's how we bring together the relative and the absolute. The relative means that because of the way the mind's conditioned, when certain things happen, the mind's going to react in some way. 
But the absolute point of view is, even though the mind's reacting, in that moment of reacting, the mind doesn't need to take the reaction personally. It can just be the next thing that's being known. And it will arise, and then it will cease. Because that's what happens with mind states or emotional states. They get triggered, they arise, and then they pass away. They only seem to arise and then stay because the mind gets identified, right? Oh, this is my fear, my defensiveness, my anger. And then we proliferate, we think about it. We we basically enter into a feedback mechanism. The mind enters out of habit, enters into this feedback mechanism where it knows how to re-trigger that same emotion over and over again. So it feels like that defensiveness or that fear has some continuity. It doesn't actually, it's arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And the mind is just causing that out of habit to arise and cease and arising and cease. But with wisdom, the mind sees it and doesn't grab a hold of it, doesn't feed it, doesn't continue the process. So it just ceases. Because if you really look, you'll see any thought, any emotion, it has a little moment of birth, a moment of expression, a moment of cessation. Things only have the appearance of continuity. But when we look, there isn't any continuity. Things are just coming and going, coming and going. And so if the mind isn't involved in a way that's perpetuating the, you know, the rep- uh, repeating arising of a particular emotion, it's done. And then the next thing's happening, whatever that is. Maybe a sense of relief. Well, that's nice. Defensiveness came up. Now it's gone. Maybe there's this arising of appreciation or gratitude for the training we've done. How wonderful. These teachings actually work. I'm so happy. I'm so appreciative. And then that arises and ceases. And then maybe we grab, oh, I've got to do more retreat practice. You know? And then we say, oh, that's greed. <laughs> and we don't take a hold of it. And it passes away. And then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. It could be, I mean, you know, in terms of an enlightened and awakened mind, it's one moment of arising and non-grasping, followed by the next moment of something arising, and the way the mind is relating to that arising is non-grasping. And the difference between an ordinary, non-awakened mind and an exceptional, awakened mind is, in the unawakened mind, there is ceaseless mind states, physical states arising and ceasing. Same with the awakened mind. But in the unawakened mind, that ceaseless arising and passing away of mental and physical phenomena is related to with grasping. The mind's taking, in a sense, identifying or grasping, taking a hold of whatever's coming up in the mind or body, taking it personally and reacting to it. And in an awakened mind, you still have the same mind experiences and physical experiences coming and going. But the mind is relating with non-grasping. It's just letting things come and go without the identification and the reactivity. And all of this, this possibility of moving from an ordinary mind to an awakened mind is just about understanding the role of intention. We tend to fall into one of two traps. Either we think we should be completely responsible, like, okay, don't do that. You know, don't get reactive and we want to take control. But the problem with approaching suffering from a personal point of view, like, oh, I'm suffering and I don't want to suffer anymore, 
So I'm going to exercise control. You know, in Buddhism we call that volition. It's like I'm going to use my will, my willfulness, to stop getting attached, to stop identifying, to stop making mistakes. But that, of course, itself is a kind of identification. I'm identified with being the master of the universe, or at least the master of my mind. And it's confusing often, because even in the language of Buddhism, there's often things about you know mastering the mind, controlling the mind. But the teachings are more nuanced than that. So it sounds right, but it's not quite right. Just like it can sound right to say, let go, which is the way to happiness is to realize we're not in control. It's all in personal causes and conditions just happening. So all I need to do is let go, let things be. But see, that's not quite right either. That sort of leads to uh, a nihilistic view, just like the other view, like I'm going to be in control. That leads to a very self-centered view, you know, like I can exercise control, overcome this habit, and free myself from suffering. Letting everything be and just assuming if we just let go, everything's going to resolve itself and happiness will arise. That's also misreading. So the Buddha taught a middle way, and this middle way is really around intention. But it's not about controlling intention, and it's not about just letting the habits, the motivations and intentions in the mind just continue as they've been continuing. The active force that we bring to the moment is understanding. That's how we participate in the moment. Not by controlling what's coming and going, not by just letting go and letting everything be, but by understanding. So the mind is actively doing something. It's not passive in practice. The mind, we're training the mind to actively discern or understand. Basically, we're understanding cause and effect, karma. But in particular, no, it's nice to understand karma in the world. We see somebody acting out, and then we see everybody not liking them. In a way, that's observing karma. We're observing the lawfulness of how things work in the world. And so it's good to see it in in the gross or the uh, external places in the world. You know, If the United States acts like a bully in the world, then people aren't going to like the United States so much, you know? If uh, somebody's really generous, people tend to like that person. You know, if somebody's really stingy, people tend not to like those people. We just see this being acted out all the time around us. Now, the key is to start understanding it in more subtle ways in the mind. When the mind relates like this, this unfolds, experience unfolds this way. When the mind is relating in this other way, experience unfolds in another way. And we're really understanding how potent one's understanding is in terms of how things unfold. So more important than anything else is the way the mind is relating or the way the mind is understanding. The Buddha puts this really at the heart of transformation. What we're ultimately transforming is our view, the mind's view. From a fixed self-centered point of view where we're, we don't even realize it is so automatic, so much a part of our cultural conditioning, maybe genetic conditioning, but it's just part of our conditioning. This immediate projection of a sense of self to whom experience is happening. 
this is a view. It's not a given. It's just a very deep habit of the mind. And it's not even the obvious habit. I mean, it's not even the obvious way to relate, but this is how we've been trained. But by studying intention, we really can start to free the mind from this habit, this particular view. So we're not going to be the helpless victim. We don't need to be the master of the universe. We can really understand another way. So next week I'll talk about a little bit more about how, you know, this moment of experience. And the Buddha, you know, was the master at deconstructing. And so he's creating a model, but this model actually represents what's happening when we pay careful attention. In order to pay careful attention, that means we have to have no agenda. We can't actually see the mind clearly if we have an agenda. We have to have a neutral but very alert attitude with the mind. And we'll see that in any experience, you know, uh, having a physical experience like feeling pain in the knee or in a a mental experience like being aware of an emotion or being aware of a mind state, we call that contact. So we have consciousness, which is just this capacity to see or to know, right? And in order to know something, there has to be some sensitivity. The body, for example, is sensitive to light, to form, to color, sensitive to sound, sensitive to touch, sensitive to smell and taste. And the mind and body is also sensitive to thought. So it's not only do we think, but we're aware of thoughts. We can sense them, just like we can sense sight or visual form. We can sense sound. We can also sense mental activity, right? When I have a mental image, it's a little bit like seeing. I'm sensing that mental image. Or if I'm having a thought about somebody, I can sense that. I can be aware or awake to that, just like I can be awake to a sound. So we're sensitive in these six ways. And the Buddha described that moment of contact as three things coming together. There's sensitivity, and there's something we're sensing with that sensitivity, and that's all being known by consciousness. It's all being cognized or illuminated by what we call consciousness. And that's just a moment of of contact. Sense experiences, of course, is happening all the time. So many little moments of sense contact. Even right in this instant, you know, there's often we're sensitive to seeing and hearing and sensation, maybe mind state, thought. But as soon as we have a contact, there's several things, three things that arise right at the same time. With every sense experience, there's perception. This is where the past gets involved. So when I look over and see Cole sitting over there, it's not just consciousness, visual sensitivity, seeing you know particular color, shape, and form, but there's also what rushes in at the same time is all of my memory. Like the mind says, oh, that's Cole. Right? So there's recognition. The mind recognizes, it's like the past informs that sense contact. So we call that perception, or you could call it memory or recognition. So that's, the Buddha points that out as one of the important aspects of the mind. The mind perceives, it recognizes, it remembers. 
And that you can't really distinguish that from the sense contact because they come together. I mean, I can work at it. I can sort of, sort of highlight the fact that of the particular shape and color and form, or I could highlight the particular memory. Oh, yeah, that's cool. But they're really conjoined in a way. But it's not just the perception that arises with sense contact. There's also the flavor of it. Like, is that a pleasant visual form, visual experience, or is it unpleasant, or is it neutral? And there's nothing I can do about that either. So when we have a sense contact or a sense experience, we're going to remember or perceive it. We're going to, our past is going to inform that experience, right? And then we're going to have some sort of evaluation of it that, oh, that's pleasant, or that's unpleasant, or it's kind of neutral. And we don't really control that. All this happens with the contact. And then the third thing that happens with contact is what the Buddha often gets translated uh, from the Buddhist word sankara, mental formation. The mind constructs something with the sense contact and the perception and the feeling tone. The mind constructs something. Like it constructs, it puts together usually some action, you know, wanting to, intending to think about that or say something about that or do something about that particular sense experience. So this is sankara, this is where intention is. And intention or sankara actually has both an active and a passive quality. Uh, one way I like to talk about this, Andy Olensky talks about it in terms of, uh, you know, uh, like in terms of our meditation practice, he says, we intend to sit, we intend to meditate, and then we meditate, and then we become the one who meditated. And so this is a nice way of outlining, outlining the three aspects of intention or sankara. It's like uh, we have a sense experience. For example, I wake up, my alarm goes off in the morning, and the thought arises in my mind, it's time to meditate, you know? And that's a sense contact, right? Consciousness illuminates the fact that there's a thought and the mind is sensitive to that thought, right? And then with that, maybe there's a particular feeling like, oh, good, or oh, <laughs> I don't want to meditate. But whatever it is, there's a feeling, and then there's a perception. Like, my perception might be like, you know, you're a Buddhist meditation teacher. You better meditate, or you're not going to feel good about what you're doing. <laughs> you know, and I'm just being funny, but something like that, maybe. And then, and then an intention will arise, like... Uh, Get up, get your clothes on, get yourself over to common ground or something like that, right? So that's the intention. I haven't done anything. I'm still in bed. But there's that intention. And then that intention can lead to the action. I actually get up and put my clothes on and get myself over to common ground. And then once I've done that, <clears throat> I'm a different human being. I'm now the one who got up this morning and got myself to common ground. And this is what I was talking about earlier where we become the fruit of our actions. And the Buddha says that. I meant to read this earlier, but I'll read it now. Beings are owners of their actions. These are the words of the Buddha. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They um, originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge, 
It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior or superior, pleasant or unpleasant. So in a way, what we refer to as self conventionally, like myself, yourself, ourselves, what we're really referring to is the fruit of action. That's really what's here. And it's impersonal, but very real, nonetheless. So in a way, you know, I could say I'm Mark Nunberg, but I could also say I'm the person who said this back then. I'm the person who did this. When I was 18, I did that. What's here is the person, in part, is the person who did that, you know, some, you know, 38 years ago or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. So, um, 36 years ago. 36 years ago. So that's sort of an interesting way to think about ourselves. It's like that's what we are. And it's not good or bad. It's just the truth. We're the fruit of everything that's been done, intentionally done before. Now, it's not a deterministic model like, well, then we're screwed because what can we do? But there is an active, there's one thing that's happening in this moment which is affecting what goes forward. How am I relating, right now, how is the mind relating to the fruit of everything that's happened before that's arising right now as this? That's where we get to play. That's the only place we get to play. How we understand. That's what I was saying about view. Like, for example, if you, you start having a sense of being the owner of your actions and you start taking it really personally, like, oh my God, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that, I am so bad. And then you start to proliferate. So you're relating, there is this cumulative fruit, boom. It's arising right now as our life, external situation, internal state, like our mind state, body state, all of this is somehow the natural unfolding of many lawful causes and conditions. And then we take it personally. That's one way to view it, take it personally. And then we just, then, then the appropriate thing would be to see, well, what does that add to the mix? Taking the present moment the present arising personally, getting attached to it or identified with it, what kind of future is that setting in motion for us? So that's a particular view. Is that view helpful? Does it set in motion happiness or stress? That would be a good thing to understand. And we can see that directly moment to moment. So when we, so it's not about, like I said earlier, it's not about controlling our view. I heard the Buddha says, Non-grasping is the right view. And then we say, okay, I'm going to non-grasp. <laughs> That's my view. I'm not going to grasp anything. But you can't, it can't happen that way. As much as that might be easy, you know, okay, Buddha teaches emptiness, so I'm just going to be empty. Because view can't be a self-centered project. That's not view. That's just, well, it is view. It's like the view of trying to become something. But it isn't really that view. 
the view has to arise from directly seeing cause and effect. We notice how we're relating and we see what it sets in motion. And eventually, that is what refines the whole system. Like it or not, we can't take somebody else's insight and directly apply it to our life. We have to have the same insight ourselves. So if non-grasping really is the way, not being attached, being present, being intimate, but non-attached, if that's actually the way to happiness, it's not enough to hear it from somebody else. We have to directly see that attachment doesn't work. And we have to directly see that non-attachment works. And then it becomes who we are. It becomes our way of relating because we've directly seen it. The mind sees it and it purifies itself through seeing clearly causes and conditions, the consequences of wrong, what we would call wrong view, which just means a view, a way of relating that leads to more stress or a way of relating that leads to the freedom from stress, which we'd call right view. I'll just end by reading a, a paragraph from Jack Kornfield's chapter and then we'll open it up, see what other people have to say. This is early on in the chapter and he, he delineates the particular Buddhist psycho uh, Buddhist psychology principle as be mindful of intention. Intention is the seed that creates our future. And then a little later he says, a good way to begin to understand karma is by observing our habit patterns. When we look at habit and conditioning, we can sense how our brain and consciousness creates repeated patterns. If we practice tennis enough, we will anticipate our next hit as soon as the ball leaves the other player's racket. If we practice being angry, the slightest insult will trigger our rage. These patterns are like a rewritable CD. When they are burned in repeatedly, the pattern becomes the regular response. Modern neuro neuroscience demonstrates this quite convincingly. You know, if we're stressed and we eat, because that's what we do when we're stressed, well, every time we do it, it makes it more likely that the next time we're stressed, we're going to feel this strong compulsion to eat. The more we've done something, the stronger the disposition is to do it again. And that's how we become somebody. Like My personality has become this way because there's been a compulsion, that intention, that it was allowed to go to action, and then I became the person that did it. It gets established like an imprint or a trace an overlay in the mind, and it becomes part of what the mind is. Jack Cornfield goes on, he says, um, our repeated patterns of thought and action actually change our nervous system. Each time we focus our attention, follow our attentions, our nerves fire, synapses connect, and those neural patterns are strengthened. The neurons literally grow along that direction. Now, Personally, I think that the sort of neural patterns are following a more subtle, what we call the mind, but it doesn't really matter if you think the brain is producing the mind or the mind is sort of being reflected in terms of the biology of the brain. The, the point here is that um, we have absolutely every incentive to be interested in this lawful unfolding of cause and effect. 
what we call karma. And the driving force, the one place where we can be active is every moment when there's a sense experience, then something's going to come surging forth because of that sense experience or sense contact. We call that intention. There's lots of intentions. When I see somebody or think something or feel something in my body, it's not just one intention. So the first and strongest intention may not be at all skillful. It may be just a kind of blind reaction to that experience. So we might need to feel many intentions before there's one that we're willing to allow into action that then becomes who we are, becomes part of who we are, what we are. So with mindfulness, we can let intentions come and cease without action. But if we're not mindful, if an intention gets triggered and we're not mindful, we're just going to do it. We're like a robot. You know, we see something, it triggers some intention, and we act it out. And later we might go, why did I do that? (laughs) Well, we did that because there was an intention to do that. And we didn't see the intention. If we had seen the intention, we would have noticed maybe this intention leads to stress. Let it come and let it go. And that not doing it doesn't have to be a tight thing. It's really the strength what allows us not to act out an intention is the strength of knowing, honey, that leads to stress. It's the wisdom that understands, don't need to get identified with that. I mean, think about how many times we hate somebody we actually love. You know, they do something. We don't have to believe that thought, and there are a lot of times we don't. You know, your, your two-year-old or your three-year-old just learns to talk just enough to say, I hate you, mommy. <laughs> You know, and there might be like an, an almost an instinctual thing like you can't say that to me, but we don't have to get identified with that aspect of the mind. We can just let that little flare up of anger blossom and cease without having to act it out in any way whatsoever. We're already doing this. There are many intentions that arise when we're conscious, when we're awake, come and go, but we don't pick them up, we don't act them out, we don't believe them. We just know it's just a, it's just an intention. It's just a little blip, a little impulse that doesn't need to be followed. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people. If you have anything to share or any questions, please speak up nice and loud so people can hear you. Yeah, Jim. Um, I guess I mean I I get uh, benefit from from unfolding and releasing and dissipation of sense itself, but. Uh, Jack Kornfeld, I read the book, talks about the neuroscience, of modern neuroscience. The early Buddhists didn't have a lot of, weren't informed about a lot of what's happening now. Um, and I'm wondering if that, if the true sense of self, the very impulse of it, doesn't come from a more primitive part of the brain. And so conscious, and Buddhist, Buddha talked about consciousness and that sense of self coming from the consciousness and, it dissipate, and being able to dissipate it. But could it be that a more primitive part of the brain is stimulating a sense of self, just like when you walk up a, a curb when, when a bus is coming, you'll jump back on. It's not a conscious effort. And even when I'm in a state where I feel like I'm, I'm not connecting with my story, is there still an impulse coming to me from a very primitive part of my brain saying, yes, there's a sense of self, there's a self-preservation it's part of my DNA, and it keeps me 
coming back to not only a sense of self, but manifesting to greed, hate, Well, it's an interesting question. If you didn't hear, Jim was saying, you know, where did basically the question, where does this sense of self come from, and does it come from a primitive uh, part of the brain, like the brain stem? You know, there's some aspects of the brain that are similar to very simple animals and some aspects of our brain that are unique to humans or at least unique to primates. And uh, and if that's the case, then, you know, maybe there's, I don't know if this is the, where you're going with your question, but maybe there's nothing we can do about it. But, but here's another way of approaching the problem. The real question is, can we directly experience you know, because we're really talking about view. Because the sense of self is a view. It's a way of understanding our experience. Are we understanding it from the point of it's happening to me? There's a somebody, which I'm referring to as me, to whom the experience is happening, who owns the experience, who cares about the experience. So there's that self-orientation. That's a view. And the question is, the real important question is, is that view fixed, or is there uh, is there a way to have a different view? And that's something we should experiment with directly. Once, and the first way we start to experiment with it is we start correlating that because you know we already know directly in our experience that there are sometimes when that self-centeredness is uh, is specifically very strong, very intense. And there's times when it's not so intense. So even in that play, like when we're really uh, like in a more primitive place, a survival place, or somebody's embarrassed us, so psychological survival, then that sense of self can be quite strong. And then when that view is quite strong, we can just see how things unfold. And we'll notice there's a lot of tightness. There's a lot of stress. We do things that create suffering for ourselves and others. Then other times when we're feeling relatively safe, relatively supported by the world, by others, by our conditions, that sense of self isn't so strong. And we can, we can just get a sense of what it is to relate with a little bit more space and a little less of that strong sense of self. And we'll notice how much easier everything is. So that that kind of insight is already available to everybody here, and it starts to develop some confidence. Well, if moving in this direction inevitably leads to tightness, and moving this way leads to looseness, how much can the mind move in this direction? And what, what are the causes that lead the mind to relate with less and less sense of self, less and less of attachment or grasping? So that way we don't even need to answer that question. Because the real question is, what view, what views are available, and what views are skillful, and what views are unskillful? And how do we go from unskillful views to skillful views? The Buddha was very pragmatic in that way. And it really, like, that's why it wouldn't even be appropriate to say, well, you know, you should relate as if there's no self, because there isn't a self. You know, that's not even the appropriate way. It's better to think about the whole teaching on non-self, not-self, or the impersonal nature of things as a skillful means. 
you know, especially the historic Buddha, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about absolutes. You know, the world is absolutely this way, so you should get your view in accordance with that. It was very much more, you know, if you do this, you get these results. Check it out. You know, if you want to be happy, notice that when you're relating this way, you're not very happy. You're not very peaceful. You're not very kind. When you're relating this way, it's easier to be kind. It's easier to be happy and peaceful. So it's really pragmatic in that way. And then we don't have to... And I think this can be a problem these days. Is like It almost feels sometimes like to be a good practitioner, we need to know something about neuroscience. The only point, in terms of the practice, now there's a lot of good reasons maybe to study neuroscience, but in terms of the practice, the only reason you'd need to study neuroscience, uh, because I think it really does support a lot of the Buddhist teachings, would if you need faith to do the practice. But if you already have motivation to do the practice, then study neuroscience if you have another reason to. But you don't have to study it for the practice. You don't need that kind of information to do the practice well. To do the practice, you just have to understand that view matters. And so I'm paying attention. I'm waking up to my mind, to the activity of the mind, in order to learn more and more clearly that the particular view that's operating has an effect. And I'm going to learn. So if I have this particular view, I'm going to learn what kind of effect it's having. And if I have another kind of view, I'm learning what effect it's having. What is it setting in motion directly in my life? That's my response. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, Venerable Trump Paul. So, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier in your talk, and I've heard you in the past speak very briefly about, or using sort of a way of speaking, saying that where do we hold our allegiance? What our allegiance is with our experience? with our concepts about our experience and mm-hmm. you know, where else our concepts are about. And, I mean, I, I think that that's, I'm, I'm assuming that it's very similar to what you were talking about earlier in this talk, the difference between us and the mind of the Buddha, just on a more basic level, I would assume, the Buddha's mind would be far beyond that, that realm. The question is, um, how, how do we skillfully develop methods to recognize where our allegiance lies. Because a lot of the time, my allegiance, most of the time, my allegiance does lie from concepts. I have thoughts and I think they're right. Yeah. And most of the time, they're, well, all of the time they're biased. And most of the time they're Yeah. Yeah, and this is why Buddhism gets um, a reputation of being negative because to answer your question, like how do we figure out where our allegiances lie, is we have to be uh, we have to be willing to make stress and suffering our teacher, because it teaches us something. So, so like uh, if we're sensitive to being stressed and so sensitive to being oppressed and sensitive to being bound up and confused and other unpleasant states of mind, then every time we're we're aware that the mind is bound up or stressed, then we're correlating that with a view. 
within allegiance, you know, in the way that you raised the, the point, we're seeing that, oh, there's a relationship between the way the mind is relating or the way the mind is understanding experience and this feeling of being bound up or weighed down or oppressed by life, by my experience. You're just seeing that over and over again. And then sometimes, of course, we're seeing that there's not much stress, not much suffering. And we do the same analysis. We're saying, well, what, what is that related to? What view is that related to? What way of being in the world is that feeling of lightness and buoyancy and compassion and friendliness? What is it related to? And we see, oh, it's related to this view. You know, the mind is relating, not taking things very personally. And, and then that is the distilling process. Like the more we make that connection between suffering, a lot of suffering, a little suffering, not much suffering, no suffering at all, those few moments in our lives when we really don't have any suffering or not much at all. And we're doing that analysis where we're correlating that experience of suffering or not suffering with the view that's operating in the mind, then this, it distills. There, this wisdom starts to form where we understand right view and we understand wrong view. And that distillation process is just another way of saying the path of awakening. The path of awakening is the distillation of right view. Right now, you know, as just a beginning practitioners, most of us should consider ourselves beginning practitioners. I consider myself a beginning practitioner in a lot of ways, too. Um, as beginning practitioners, we're just getting a sense that this is relevant. You know, right view, wrong view is relevant. Like, there is a path that actually leads to real freedom and real compassion and real wisdom. And then the motivation comes out of that, the motivation to do this analysis where we're noticing when we're suffering, or even if it's mild suffering, and we're relating it to the particular view. Normally, we think I'm suffering because of this particular condition, like I have to sit, I can't leave, and my knee hurts. But what we're doing is we're, we're relating the, the suffering not to the particular condition, the pain in my knee, but how the mind is relating to that pain. So we're always looking at the present moment input. What is the mind doing, and how is that contributing to the feeling of suffering? or the feeling of not suffering. Because that's where we can actually uh, respond. It's like with our view. So we're putting, we're developing mindfulness in order to be mindful of view or intention in the mind. And we have to leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together. having a sense of how the mind is now, how it's relating. Is it frustrated? Is it in a hurry? Is it spacious and calm? Without judging it, or if you are judging it, then just notice that you're relating with judgment. You're just noticing how that's affecting things. How the mind is relating affects things and being inspired to relate in ways that contribute to peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. This is our deep aspiration.
Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks for your comments. We'll continue the conversation for the next two weeks or so. Santa.